looking at how God's people have lived out their faith in different times under different circumstances uh, throughout history, the history of the church. We've been doing this to encourage us uh, to be willing ourselves to uh, do the same in our own time, to be a a faithful witness uh, to our Lord in our own situation and circumstances. Um, In Romans chapter 15 and verses 4 through 6, Paul writes there, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this Old Testament record, and it's written for our instruction, and that, that through endurance and instruction and, and encouragement, we might have hope. And then the call is that we would exercise that hope and live for the Lord. Now, we've worked our way down here in Hebrews chapter 11 into the days of the judges. And now, to perhaps the most infamous of those judges, Samson. Everything about this man is big and bold. His is the longest biography in the book of Judges. And it begins with God's call upon his parents to raise him under the strict orders of a Nazarite vow. You heard that in the, in the passage I read a few moments ago, uh, where he says in Judges to Delilah that he had been under that vow. But if you look, keep your place in Hebrews 11 and, and flip over to Judges 13 and verses 1 through 5, we read this. Judges 13.1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this is the announcement of Samson's birth. We come down to verse 13 of chapter 13, and we find that this announcement is confirmed by another visit from the angel. This is Judges verse 13. Judges chapter 13, verse 13. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I command her, let her observe. Now, from that introduction, we come back now to Hebrews chapter 11. And it's from this point, after the announcement of his birth, that the whole story unfolds in a very grand way. And that brings us back to Hebrews 11. And after taking us through the lives of men and women from the creation to the fall of Jericho, 
and using them to illustrate faith. Hebrews chapter 11 describes what faith is. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And then the Holy Spirit amplifies that in verses 32 and says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now looking back at verse 32, we find couched between Barak, the great general of Israel, the great general of faith, and Daniel, the great king of faith, Samson. And I think it's probably safe to say that most people familiar with the Bible, compiling a short list of the greatest examples of faith, would not choose Samson as an example. And yet God did. Don't think most people would, but God did. Now, if you were talking about a list of Bible characters who did great things, Samson would easily make the list, I think. But this isn't a list of those who did great things. This is a list of those who exhibited great faith. And his appearance here should pique the interest of every believer. How did Samson get here between Barak and David? How did he get here with Abraham and Isaac and with uh, um, uh, all of the others who are listed in this, in this uh, list of great men and women of faith? Well, I think we find the answer in part in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, where Paul, speaking of the gospel, says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As one gifted preacher, a man of God named uh, Thomas Kirk put it, the outstanding blemish in the character of Samson 
a blemish which sadly interfered with his unreserved consecration to his divinely appointed life work was the unbridled strength of his natural passion of love. Now, if we were talking about making a list of people who made bad choices in the Bible, I think Samson would be there, especially bad choices based on love uh, or passion or lust. We would put Samson in that list. The weakness, this weakness of being... Uh, overcome by this natural passion, plagued him from the beginning. When he spied a woman among the Philistines, Israel's spiritual, economic, and political enemies, the people who were oppressing his people at the time, and because he saw her, ordered his parents to make her his wife, despite, despite the fact that it endangered his personal faith, would compromise his office as a judge and possibly sidetrack his calling as the deliverer of his people. She looked good to him. The scripture emphasizes that twice, that that's why he goes after this woman. She looks good to his eyes. The Lord had warned his people more than once with words like these. And this is from Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 12. Exodus 34, 12. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of a sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. The Lord, speaking through Moses, gives this warning again and again. But this Samson wouldn't hear and he refused to heed the word of the Lord and therefore we read in Judges chapter 14 and verses 1 through 3 that Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines and he came up and told his father and mother I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah now get her for me as my wife but his father and mother said to him Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. She looks good to me, and she's the one I want. This error in judgment, rather than bringing him joy and satisfaction in a blessed marriage, ends up leading to the first bitter and violent events that are going to eventually result in the liberation of Israel from the Philistines. Now, though he was mocked and betrayed by this Philistine woman and her family and her friends, after a while, 
the strong lover's passion for the woman who looked so good to his eyes, rekindled. And even though he had gone away from her (coughs) after he was mocked, he came back to her, only to find that she had been given to another man. And with a renewed sense of betrayal and justice, he avenged himself by setting fire to all the stores of the Philistines. The Philistines retaliated, executing his wife and his father-in-law, and executed them by fire, burned them, as Samson had burned their property. The result of that was that the Philistines who engaged in that behavior were executed themselves, hip and thigh, as the scripture puts it, by Samson for doing so. Now time, as the author of Hebrews says, doesn't afford us the opportunity to cover every one of Samson's exploits here. They're easily followed in the book of Judges, and uh, the 15th chapter ends with these words in verse 20, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And that brings us to Gaza. In Gaza, Samson once again gives way to his passions violating the will of God. Once more, it's his eyes that lead him astray. Some commentators are of the strong opinion that it's nothing more than curiosity that even brings Samson to Gaza in the first place. A desire to see with his own eyes what this place looks like. And spying there in that city a prostitute with those curious eyes, he endangered himself again. But God once more used it as a step towards Israel's delivery. Kirk, Thomas Kirk, the man we we quoted earlier, says on this point, his giving way to temptation at Gaza strengthened the power of lawless passion and weakened his power to resist. And this lowering of his character was not only a severe punishment, but the cause of his uh, ultimately losing the extraordinary strength which God had endowed him with. And what we want to see as we just pause at this point in Samson's life is that God often spared Samson, but he was never the better for it. He was often spared, but never the better for it. And let me say simply to you children and you young people in our midst today, If you find yourselves escaping accountability for some sin, do not assume that God approves or that you've really escaped anything. If God spares us and that sparing doesn't lead to repentance, we may soon find ourselves in even greater sin and even greater danger. If you know yourself to have been spared, That is a call to repentance, to humility before the Lord. David, after his great sin with Bathsheba, prays this in Psalm 51 and beginning in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your willing spirit. Don't let me go on in a path like this. Don't let me go on in, in this course that I've entered into. But having held me accountable for it now, Lord, keep me from such things. Lay your hand upon me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I would admonish that, I would bring that same admonishment to you. If you know yourself to have escaped, young or old, some great sin, and have thought that it's just something you've gotten away with, and haven't really dealt with it in a repentant way before the Lord, now is the time to repent before you find yourself like Samson, entering into something further. Now we come to Delilah. After that escape from Gaza, he finally becomes entangled with Delilah, who was from the beginning an agent of the Philistines for ruin, for his ruin. In Judges chapter 16, verses 4 through 5, it says, After this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorig, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now this is the scripture's testimony of what takes place here. And I just want to take just a second to address the fact that we live in an age when situations like this are being re-evaluated by scholars. And one of those re-evaluations relates to the bad women of the Bible. And the bad men of the Bible, too. So it's not just the women. But... We're being told, for example, that Judas really wasn't as bad, perhaps, as we've been led to believe he was. And, of course, Delilah falls into that category, too. She's just a patriot. That's all she is. A patriot who's willing to take a bribe to betray her her husband. That's all. Um, But she's a patriot. (laughs) And we realize that, you know, those who are looking at it say, well, she was under the influence of these men. They were forcing her to do things. If you look at the text again, she's the one who calls the Philistine lords to come and to hide, to ambush uh, Samson. So she is what she appears to be in the scripture. Jezebel's another one who we're being told today really wasn't as bad as you think she is. She was really just just doing what she should do as a pagan queen. And we should accept that and, and not be prejudiced against her because of what the Bible says. So... Delilah, despite what modern critics are saying, the only record we have of her doesn't cast her in that sympathetic light. But we come back to Samson because there's something about the way Samson is attracted, especially by his eyes, to what is forbidden. There's something about the forbidden that just draws this man's attention. You remember when he came upon the lion where he was? He was in the vineyard of Timnah, 
What grows in vineyards? Thank you. Grapes. Is he supposed to drink wine? No. Is he supposed to drink, is he supposed to eat grapes? No. Is he supposed to even eat the skin of the grape? No. Is he supposed to eat grape seed? You know, for his health? You know, he's a, he's a, he's a health nut, right? He's this big, strong guy. Is he supposed to eat grape seed to make him even? No, he's not even supposed to eat that. So what's he doing in the vineyard alone in Timnah? We find him here. And I should maybe explain what that vow states, going back to Numbers chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. This is what the Nazarite vow was according to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. Can't even have a raisin. And all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Now he finds Delilah, a woman from the valley of Sarek, or that is the valley of vines, probably purple grapevines used for making wine. And he falls in love with her, being drawn off again by the lust of his eyes. Now what transpires with Delilah, we hardly need to mention. John was singing about it to us this morning, and uh, we're all familiar with some version of the story. We read it a few moments ago. Hopefully our familiarity is, comes from the biblical uh, account. If not, it's a quick read from Judges 16, 1 through 20. And it ends, of course, with this scene, beginning in verse 19. Judges 16, 19. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. So here's the hero of faith from Hebrews chapter 11, blind and enslaved to his enemies, grinding out corn like a dumb mule or an ox, a victim of his own unbridled passions. So where's the faith? Where's the faith here? He even becomes, in his humiliation, a cause for the worship and praise of the notorious fishman god of the Philistines, Dagon. We look at verses 23 and 24 of Judges 16. 
Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemies into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. This champion of faith is the one here who is inspiring the worship and the praise of a pagan god by his sin? Where is the evidence of faith? George Bush says the champion and avenger of Israel has now become the drudge and the sport of the Philistines. We see here where the wayward eye led him. Surely he never thought these women who pleased him so much would bring him to such ruin but that's the nature of sin beloved it appears what it is not we allow the little sin thinking we'll never be drawn into the greater but like the drop of water in the crevice of the rock as the heart grows cold because of that sin the little sin hardens and opens the crack wider until the heart is laid open Guj says, hereby it is manifest that God will not suffer scandalous crimes to pass unpunished. No, not in his dearest children. In Psalm 89, verse 31, we read, The Lord saying to David, If your children violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or, my, or be false to my faithfulness. Now, in our group study, small group study of judges, we're right in the heart of this story. One of the observations that we made in the beginning of that study of Samson is that Samson is not set before us in the scriptures so much as an example for emulation as a type of Jesus Christ. And that may seem strange to think of Samson as a type of Christ. But there are more than 15 ways in which Samson may be seen as a type of the Savior. And in that, the only other Old Testament figure in which there's more relationship in types towards Christ is King David. So Samson comes in second in providing types of Christ. But all of this brings us to the most obvious question. And it stands without an obvious answer. Where do we see this man being assured of things hoped for and acting upon them? Where do we see him so convinced of unseen things that he responds as though they were clearly before his eyes? Where do we find him drawing near to God as God and acting as though he believes that God is all that he says he is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So far, we have to admit that Samson seems to have been just the opposite. Except for those times that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he seems to have no strength born of faith at all. Now, there is a general answer, 
And it's said by many that each time the Spirit came upon Samson when he did those great feats, that he was trusting in the calling and blessing of the Lord to be uh, made strong or even stronger than his enemies. That he was exercising faith when he kept his Nazarite vow, but he forsook that in the end. But be all that as it may, it doesn't satisfy us in the context. We're looking for some evidence of profound faith, a faith that produces noticeable fruit. And the truest act of animating faith in regard to Samson begins at the grinding mill. It is apparent that Samson sees things more clearly as he blindly pushed that millstrom than when his sinful eyes were surveying both the physical and sensual wonders of Timnah and Gaza and Sarek. The loss of his eyes, says Hall, shows him his sin. Neither could he see how ill he had done till he saw not. Till he couldn't see. Now Samson, as far as the scripture account is concerned, only called upon the Lord twice. We don't find him calling upon the Lord every time he's looking for strength. He only calls on the Lord twice. The first time was when he thought he was going to die of thirst. After he had slain the Philistines after that massacre with the jawbone. And he comes to the Lord and says, are you just going to let me die of thirst? And after this great victory, and he prays for for water, and the Lord provides it out of that jawbone. The only other time we see Samson praying is here, at the end. In the first prayer, his interest was, it seems at least, the glory of God, but it was still quite self-centered. But here we find a different Samson. Let's read of it again. This is Judges 16, beginning in verse 25. Judges 16, 25. And when their hearts were merry, the hearts of the Philistines, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. The first thing to note as we look at this scene in this moment in Samson's life is that he had the faith to pray at all. 
There is a faith here that in this moment has his eyes fixed upon God. And what are they fixed upon? They're fixed upon the great grace of God. Samson finds the grace for him to call on the Lord despite his great sin. He is anticipating God's mercy even in his sin. He's expecting to be heard. This is a prayer, as Bush says, that was drawn from the depths of a heart broken and repentant, but trusting in the mercy of the Lord. So you remember that definition of faith. It's believing that God is, that he is who he says he is, and he says he's a God of mercy, and he says he will hear the prayers of those who call upon him and who come to him for that mercy. And to look for him to, 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 to act upon that mercy. And that's what Samson does here. He calls upon the Lord in that way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Unless Samson, beloved, was trusting in God's promised mercy and grace towards sinners... How could he have dared to have said at that moment, Lord, remember me. Remember me. Remember what about you, Samson? That you were set aside before your birth to a Nazarite vow and you sold it out because of your lust? No. Remember me according to your promises. Remember me according to your grace. Remember me according to the promise that you made that you would use me to deliver your people. Ultimately, we don't take the acceptance of this prayer on the basis of how Samson offered it, but on the basis of how God answered it, indicating that God saw more there than we can see. This story, says Gouge, gives proof that grace decayed may, by repentance, be recovered, and that with the greatest advantage. When this house collapses, Samson dies with the pagan Philistines. But as they're facing death, they're all calling upon Dagon, who's nothing more than a helpless statue crushed in the falling debris with themselves. Samson calls on the name of Jehovah and God makes a clear distinction between their death in and for their sins and Samson's death in faith and immortalizes that faith in the book of Hebrews. We'll return to this in just a moment, but note now that because of his faith, God puts a clear difference between the death of Samson and all around them. He dies resting in the mercy of the Lord. Roger says, therefore, let this be a comfort to all those who are cleaving to the Lord and believing his promises and obeying his will, that as their dying may differ from the ungodly, so they in God's account shall differ, though their death differ not. What he's saying there is that we all die, the godly and the ungodly. The difference is the difference God makes in our death because of his grace.
Secondly, we find faith in the word of God. And thereby, Samson does not lose sight of his calling. We can't expect God to have endowed him with strength and power otherwise. Rogers again says, Here, first mark this, that he notwithstanding, he had lost his eyes, which should have guided his body, yet he was not unmindful of the work of his calling, namely to plague the Philistines. And that's his last prayer. Lord, remember me and use me to plague these people. That's his prayer. Why? Because that's what God had called him to. He had an eye towards God's glory. And he had a faith that trusted in the covenant. To whatever extent God allowed it, it was done by Samson with an eye toward the covenant promises. God is going to bring salvation through his people. His people must be preserved. You've called me to, to, to be a, have a part in that preservation by being a plague to the Philistines. Now, Lord, give me the strength to do what I need to do to preserve that covenant promise. This was always more than a battle between Israel and the Philistines. This was a battle for the preservation and the hope of the gospel. Every time you see Israel threatened with annihilation by their enemies, you should see Satan behind it with an eye towards destroying them so that the Messiah will never appear, so that salvation will never be brought forth. And Samson, to whatever extent grace allowed him, understood that he was there to preserve that promise. Bush says, from God's accepting and answering the prayer, it cannot be doubted that he looked upon himself in this transaction, not as a private, but as a public person, extraordinarily called to be the instrument of a signal act of vengeance to the enemies of Israel and of God. And of course, in all the 15 different ways we see him as a type of Christ, this one is the most profound, isn't it? Where he says, let me die, and gives his life as a sacrifice to destroy the enemies of his people. And isn't that exactly what your Savior did on the cross? He said, let me die that my people might live. And he entered into death for our sakes. There's a last thought here I'd like to share with you. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says this. I'm talking about the patriarchs. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then we come down to verse 39 and we're told there that all these that are in the list, including Samson, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This whole chapter, including the mention of Samson, is meant to set before you and me the fact that God has made a clear distinction between the death of his people 
his saints, and others. It is their faith, weak or strong, man or woman, martyr or not, purifying their hearts that makes their deaths to differ. And they yet don't come into the fullness of the promise because that difference is going to be made for you and me as well. And these people are marked out in the word because we see them living by faith and believing in the promises and waiting, in a sense, for you to live by faith and to die in the promises and join them until all is satisfied. And I want you to think about this as we close this morning. Samson dies blind. He dies in rags, surrounded by those who hated and who despised him. But Samson awoke dressed in righteousness, seeing as he had never seen before among the company of angels and all the just made perfect in Christ Jesus waiting for you and me. Just think of that contrast from one moment to the next. There he is with his hands on, that, on those pillars, despised, mocked, blind, in rags, jeered at, appearing to be a fool. But because of his faith, he awakes in the comforts and the joys and the blessings of heaven, not wearing his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He was a big sinner. He was. But God is a gracious God and granted him mercy and ended up honoring him by listing him here among those who had faith. Because in the end, he had faith in who God was, that he was the God who is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if, there anyone, if there's anyone here tonight, excuse me, this morning, who is struggling with or dealing with sin, we pray, Lord, that with the example of Samson, they will even now repent. Maybe it's someone who has committed some offense and against you and believes that they've gotten away with it and yet are feeling the guilt of it even now. Lord, this is the time, this is the hour, this is the day to repent of that and to look to you and ask to be remembered. Not in our sin, but Lord, remembered by your grace and your love and your mercy. And may they call out in the name of Christ for forgiveness and find, Lord, that peace which passes understanding in the Lord Jesus Christ, if they have not known him up to this moment, or, Lord, find that forgiveness if they're believers that will allow them to be restored and, again, on the path that leads to righteousness. Father, we pray that we all may be thankful this morning for the great grace that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
all of Samson's sins, not all of them, but many of them are on display for us in bold terms. Thank you, Lord, for not putting our sins on display in bold terms. And Lord, we pray that you would remember us for Christ's sake. Forgive us our sins and help us, Lord, to die to ourselves that we might live to Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this story and ask you to bless it to us. Bless us as we continue to study these heroes of the faith. May we, Lord, grow in grace as we do so together. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.